Fintechs and traditional finance firms want to help their small business customers replace disorganized competing manual processes and multiple data sources with a single unified set of services and data. If they could do that, they could more easily offer quicker decisions, better customer experience, and even get more first-time customers. Founded in 2017, Kodat wants to be that universal API that can connect financial firms to the platforms their small business customers use. Kodat seeks to create a single flow and view for the biz, small businesses, many accounting, banking, and commerce systems. That goal requires specialized approaches to authorization, data normalization, and availability. It also unlocks capabilities that small businesses can't usually access, like real-time risk scoring and predictive analytics. Today, we are interviewing Jason Dryhurst-Smith, head of engineering and employee one at Kodat. He's an engineer who started in firmware and embedded systems. He has uh, years of general development experiences, but now focuses primarily on platform engineering and building Kodat's full engineering team. As a quick reminder, any views expressed in this podcast by me are my own and don't represent my employer's opinion. This episode is hosted by Jocelyn Bernhul. Jocelyn is an experienced technology leader focused on startups, data, machine learning, and cybersecurity. Currently, Jocelyn owns technology partnerships for Security AI's Data Controls Cloud. Before that, she was an operating partner and investor for Capital One Ventures and a platforms product lead at Fannie Mae, Microsoft, and Capital One. Welcome, Jason. It's nice to have you on Software Engineering Daily. Hi, Jocelyn. How are you doing? Good, good. It's good to connect. I thought maybe what we could do is just start with a quick introduction of you and your background and then get started talking a, a little bit about Kodat and uh, open finance and data. Yeah. Um, so my name is Jason. I'm, I'm head of engineering at Kodat. Um, we're a business that does data aggregation for financial information. Um, I've been writing software and building things for about 15 years. I started in embedded systems and things like that and uh, moved up through this OSI stack, I guess, until now I'm doing, you know, big cloud deployed web application type things. Um, yeah, that's me. Great. Well, I'm really glad to have you on the show because, uh, as you know, data is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. There's a lot of new capabilities being unlocked uh, right now by folks like Kodat, other new thinking, cloud architecture. One of the big ideas behind that I wanted to start with is um, you hear a lot about open finance, open banking. Um, I was hoping we could just start with your definition. How do you think about the notion of open finance? Yeah, I think you know, open finance is sort of a set of ideas that I think a lot of different services are kind of coalescing around, um, and it's it's happening I think in little bits and pieces in lots of different corners of the world as slowly we get used to this kind of API software internet driven um, uh, sense of connected systems and uh, and a, sort of giving the hand the, the reins back to. Back to the data owners in how they choose who they share information about themselves, you know, with and and why, um, and, and nearly always it's data that's you know going to be super useful to uh, to automating processes that people have been doing maybe the long way for a while. And I, I think in in open finance, right, the the biggest uh, the biggest bonus is going to small, medium-sized businesses where business owners who have got usually a lot of jobs and a lot of hats to wear, um, you know, they spend a lot of time doing financial administration for a business. And, uh, and open finance a lot of times is about kind of reducing the friction. Uh, and so sometimes it's not obvious, you know, sometimes you don't see it necessarily. It's not on the face of things. It's happening under, under the hood. And it's just this sense of reduced friction and this expectation of, of being able to share your information where it needs to be um, in order to reduce that kind of administrative burden. Interesting. So you get um, like an improved customer experience. Um, you get to reduce risks. All of the friction that we see today is largely because there's so many silos of data, right? And so organizations are required to tick and tie all of them together in order to sort of laboriously get to 
um, you know, acquiring a customer in real time or providing a customer experience or shopping experience in real time. Um, so the vision, right, is to have this integrated financial experience uh, based on an integrated view of the data. Yeah, that is sounds easy to say. It's easy to say and hard to do. Uh, and I want to talk much more about that. Um, but today, um, you know, for, you know, what do small, these small and medium sized businesses get if they, as they move towards open finance, what are some of the specific benefits that, that they see? Uh, I, you know, certainly like we say frictionless, but like day to day, what, what do I get as like a benefit of this integrated data view? Yeah, I, I think a lot of this has to do with choice. You know, I think there are there are a lot of different systems that you know business as a consumer can opt into to to do some work for them, um, and so there's a lot of there's a lot to be gained from picking tools that are going to solve problems that you have, um, and. The friction then is like, well, the more choice I have in terms of the systems I use, maybe the more the administrative cost is of being able to move data between those systems. So I think as these become more connected, it opens up choice, choice about who you need to share and when you share certain information with services um, to gain some some aspect of some product offering that they have. And also gives you more choice to pick and choose what systems and services you think are going to serve the needs of your business best. Um, and it's going to help them run their, you know, their internal operations, those things, and save them time. Because you're picking that tool that's going to be the best for the job, probably to, to save you time or lower risk or whatever. Um, uh, and the more and the better that they talk to each other, um, again, uh, you're reducing that, that friction. So these are like some, you know, these are some really difficult areas of um, financial management for small, medium-sized businesses, for everyone, really, right? I think what you're you're kind of putting your finger on is like there's integration, getting all the data sources together. Um, there's this, uh, you know, reconciliation, right, of what matters and what doesn't in a given situation. Um, and then I'm just automating the risk activities, right? Um, there's probably more to it than that, but those are a couple of things that jump to mind as you're talking. And I, you know, can you give me a sense of how small and medium-sized businesses are are doing these activities today? Yeah. So the I guess on the the integration part, you know, if they if if those two systems that you might be using are not already talking to each other, then that that there's sort of the the, the competitor to that in a not. Uh, sort of open finance or connected world is, you know, you're printing off a PDF, right? You're sending your your bank, your bank statements, you know, hopefully that you've managed to be able to get off your online banking system if your bank supports that, or you've got some stack of paper that you're sending to someone. Uh, and you're maybe using the same thing for reconciliation, right? I'm going through my bank statements, I'm going through my uh, my ERP system or something like that. Um, if, I, if, if, if some business who, who cares about my operations of the business um, wants to get an understanding of the operations, they might be like, well, I'm going to trust a bank statement. So, so I, I, I think all of these things, there isn't necessarily a competitor directly to, to the non-integrated world um, for, for that, that portion. Um, and really for, the, for the, someone on the other side, um, all of those different, and we talked about the choice before. That means there's a huge amount of fragmentation starts to start to appear. Either there's, you know, there's there's every single bank in the world or every single ERP system, which means that the consumer of that that information on the other side that's going to be offering you a product needs to have some way of kind of understanding that either through some standardization or or some aggregated way of being able to consume it. Um, so yeah, I mean that's that's obviously hugely important. Uh, the reconciliation point, I guess, is that the, the next we'll one? We'll talk more about that. Um, I want to talk about, sort of about like integration, like how do you get the data and then how are you standardizing it in a way that it is um, apples to apples comparison, something that you can use all together for, you know, multiple sources for one decision. Um, and then I want to talk about sort of automating that process and making it faster and, and frictionless, right? Um, so those are to me like the three big parts of the narrative. Um, before we entirely engage in that, I thought maybe you could just, can we just walk through a, a use case to just understand uh, the sort of before and after uh, picture, which, and, and so tell me if I'm right or wrong, because I think customer acquisition is one use case I've heard about. Is that a good one? Should we walk through that for a second? So today, 
I feel like if I was, you know, a merchant or, you know, trying to offer this service to my customers, it would, it's like, it's lengthy. I have to send information into the acquirer. There's a wait period. Maybe I would end up sending a letter or, uh, you know, a couple days later an email like, Hey, we've, we've done all that you wanted us to do. And now you're, you know, an authorized user uh, authorized to, you know, spend this much and on my, in my site or my world, um, for like neobanks, fintechs, what they want to be able to do is immediately look at multiple sources of information, evaluate that risk, and immediately acquire that customer. Um, is, is that kind of the before and after picture? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so that like kind of conversion journey, I guess, is always going to be better informed. The quicker you can get that information that's going to understand whether you can qualify uh, that individual that's trying to onboard on your service, you know, the better. And and by getting a, a view of that that information to make those sorts of risk decisions or, or make that kind of decision um, quickly does require some sense of standardization. I think that's what we're kind of alluding to. And, and that's obviously one of the things that Kodak provides, you know, uh, that the, the onboarding piece is also often, you know, there's, there's a funnel uh, that that's going to drive that, you know, particular engagement to to even the point of data sharing, and I think that's another thing that Kodak, you know, feels we're pretty well placed for, uh, which is you know, a link product that we have, which is really where that journey starts, uh, which is something that we've built uh, that can be embedded directly into someone's onboarding offering. You know, if they've got uh, they've got some sort of sign up flow or something like that, right? They they know that you can you can embed Kodak in there to say, hey, look, you're going to get a much better um, much better service. It's going to be much easier to administer, and you're going to get a risk decision much quicker if you share um, financial information either from your ERP or from your point of sale system or your bank statements or a combination of those. Um, uh, and, and we've got a number of products. We've done that with a lot of um, different uh, different accounts, different clients, customers uh, for a lot of different systems and a lot of different data sources. Um, and, and we've just released actually a, a set of documentation specifically geared around hey. We've, we've run some numbers and we think we know where we can help you guide to better conversion rates on that funnel for, for data sharing. Um, so that's, that, that's one place where, you know, it's not like onboarding uh, uh, and those kind of, uh, that conversion funnel is necessary, necessarily some particular skill set. I think it's more by observation and then supplying tools to help other people do it better because, you know, actually that journey and understanding the, the, the needs of each relationship or engagement that you have, where you should be directing them, you know, is, is potentially, uh, it's going to be very important. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So if you have like a multiplicity of sources and you're able to look at them in some integrated standard way, then what you can do is make observations automatically instead of declaring a hypothesis and searching, like having this declared humans-driven process, you would have more of a machine-driven process. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, uh, so we've talked a little bit about, um, the promise, all the data is integrated and it all, you know, it's all apples to apples, which, right, that's easy. <laughs> so we'll talk about that later. Let's, we get there. Um, you know, um, we'd want a solution that does is so much of what you're saying, right? It makes it easy for me. I don't have to have my own software development group to connect to everything, share information, authorize it accurately, uh, analyze it and then act on it, right? Um, you are going to make that easy for me. Um, so um, one of the things I'd love to get some help on, Jason, thinking about code, uh, how to think about Kodak. What are the key products, right? And how should I think about the framework in which they're offered? How do you guys talk about it? Um, yeah, so uh, the I guess first and foremost, it's that you know we're we're building a product to help um, reduce friction for for SMBs, small and medium-sized businesses to to share their information and uh, with other uh, other organisations that they want to to buy products and services from, um, and and we add like a, a layer of a uh, number of products on top of that core concept um, in order to enable various use cases for 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 companies that, are, that, that need that information. So I talked maybe before about this kind of link, this kind of uh, standardized method of authorization um, that, that can really help with onboarding and converting people to, to, to uh, 
to sharing that data and understanding uh, what data they, they can share. Um, and then uh, there are a couple of other sort of you know, key product areas um, that sit on top of that. So we have an assess product, which is for, for digital lenders. That idea is it's kind of incorporating that data into what a, whatever underwriting process um, that organization might have. Um, and, a, and a sync product, things like our sync for commerce, which moves point of sale information uh, into an accounting system, uh, and sync for expenses, which is, again, moving kind of expense information uh, into, your, uh, into your accounting system to account for it. Um, and that, that's, like a, that's like a great loop, right? You want to be taking all the information you have about the behavior of your business, uh, centering it in, some, in a system that you're going to be using for reporting, and then allow you, as a, a small um, a small business to kind of share that information in this, this standardized way in order to get better access to, to products and services. Um, and that's good on, on the other side, you know, for those that are, that are using Kodak, that they can build those sorts of products without necessarily having to worry about the, the difficulty of that data aggregation portion. It's, I'm so glad you paused on this uh, automated reconciliation component that's um, supported uh, with Sync for Comp Sync. Um, it's so incredibly painful. If anybody has ever tried to do that, connect these systems and get um, some kind of uh, even like baseline understanding of how um, even payments are going in and out, you know, uh, what you owe, what people owe you, uh, it's still incredibly difficult. Yeah, um, there's, 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 in, in some instances, there's kind of a regulatory overhead about how that information needs to to be presented, um, there, and, and that can come from uh, from the, the the data kind of the, the, the system that's providing the data about how they feel that should look in uh, in an accounting system, how you account for that. And also, the ERP system itself that may be holding those that accounting data um, might have stipulations and and, um, and certain regula you know regulations around where they how they want that data from certain. Uh, from certain sources to look in their system, right? and normally that, that's kind of going to be a manual process. Your accountant or or the business owner kind of sat down doing data input, um, and it, yeah, that's it's really difficult. Um, and the same with reconciliation for uh, for things like expenses. And I think um, we saw something you know with Brex was really interesting. That was actually the the volume of spend uh, in a business in terms of how they uh, how they they spend in terms of expenses is something like eight times more when that business is connected to their accounting system. I mean, because the nature of the integration making that smooth, right, makes that process easier. Um, yeah, no, it's uh, that's the demo. If you haven't made it, I think that's the demo I would I would love to see, which is you know, hey, I'm a small business owner. Here's my website and my <laughs> my storefront, and here's my accounting software, right, and just being able to immediately you know, in real time, right? Continue, just keep that ledger rolling in a way that I can report on it. I can get the transparency, take action. Um, that's something small and medium businesses certainly haven't had access to. They're very underserved in that place. So anyway, I know you love the product. I, I'm just saying it's a very, <laughs> it's, it's a, I just want to underscore for the audience, like this is a very underserved group and it's very painful to do. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine we've got um, uh, our London office just outside our London office. There's a food market, you know, and every time I go to buy something while I'm here for lunch, you know, and you use a Zettel reader, I know that that transaction's going through that point of sale system. Now, that, that quite often the guy that's serving you the burrito is potentially the business owner. Um, you know, that transaction that's just gone in through that, that Zettel reader, I, you know, it's going to be synced. Uh, and reconciled in their accounting system, you know, by the end of the day. That means if that, you know, that business that's selling burritos next week, you know, needs to look for some working capital uh, in order to, you know, buy another hot plate because they're selling loads of burritos. I know that the the, the behaviour, like the real the reality of how that business um, is performing from the previous week, is going to be there readily available for uh, for somebody that might be able to offer them some service to. Yeah, and that's so the kind of that's the kind of actionable transparency that is really powerful. If you will get into the technical problems like it, but in the promise of it, right? <laughs> in the promise of it, um, you know, that's something small and mid-sized business haven't had this idea of access to uh, risk analytics, automated anal risk assessments, and then this ability to um, you know sync into um, your ledger, 
right? Um, and underst understand your supplies, all those things have just not been available. Um, and then um, I kind of cut you off because I think there's another part of the products you wanted to talk about. Uh, no, I, I think that was yeah. I know you did. Yeah, that was that was the that was the loop. Yeah. Okay, okay, good, good. Um, you have to stop me. I'm an interrupter. Um, but uh, all right, so that is the promise we talked about, right? And those are the products. But I do want to kind of dig in uh, and talk about the technical underpinnings of accomplishing the you know delivering those products and having them uh, adopt be adopted and work correctly. Um, you know. To me, let's talk about you'd have to have the integration, but you'd also ha have to have really powerful authorization, right? Yes. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. How are you thinking about, do you, you know, how do I authorize who on my small team can, you know, authorize which data talks to which or who, which organization gets my data or doesn't? Yeah, so our um, so we have this idea of standardized authorization on the basis of each kind of relationship has a connection to some data source. Uh, you can set up um, a product we call Link. You can set that up um, essentially to define your workflow, right, for what sources of data you uh, you want uh, in order to be able to serve um, uh, that particular engagement, uh, that particular relationship. Uh, and that will take them through a guided experience. And, and essentially, the, the standardizing part of it is, is a bit that kind of workflow um, of getting this, this consent. Now, the, most of, the, organ uh, most of the, the, sort of, uh, the systems that we're integrating with, we use some sort of like three-legged authorization, you know, OAuth 1 or OAuth 2. Obviously, OAuth 2 is very popular um, uh, to, guide those, um, uh, to guide those relationships through the, through the workflow. Uh, to get consent, we act on behalf um, of the the individuals who use Kodak, um, and of course, of course, there's the, the sensible security concerns over the kind of lifetime of tokens and things like that that right. we will manage. Uh, You're managing you know, all that for me if I want you to. Does it is it possible for me to build my own and still use the rest of the product? Um, yeah. So I, I, the way that most of those systems work is on the basis of some short time, uh, some. Uh, some short-running token, you know, something like OAuth 2, you want to be biasing towards the token that's on the wire, which is the one that, that has this, this access, is as short-lived as possible, so that it's ever particularly compromised while it's out in the wild in this untrusted world of the internet, that it, you've got the shortest possible time at which um, that you could be exposed by that. Um, so we have to manage the lifetime of that. Now, you can't generally have two parties managing the lifetime. So we ask that people who are using Kodak kind of trust us to manage the lifetime. And, and that's another one of those things where it's not as simple always um, how each of those individual service providers um, would ask you to manage that token. And it's another headache that I think you know, we look to, to alleviate. You know, when you're gathering data and aggregating data across multiple sources with a, you know, one API to rule them all, right? Like you're getting, a, you know, that's a big promise that you're making to your customers. Uh, you know, I'd love to know like what's special about your approach to aggregating this data. And then how do you keep that fresh? How do you continuously make, keep that promise that it's going to be accurate? It's going to work. Yeah, I, I um, it's a really hard problem. Uh, we have a lot of uh, well, largest engineering resource uh, in headcount is is um, is assigned to to building the integrations. You know, pulling information from APIs in the weird and wonderful ways that they want us to pull information from them, and then also in this kind of this mapping, right? This this uh, mapping to some standard, some some aggregated format. And I think one of the things that we did early on, which was maybe different than um, other organizations that have maybe uh, attempted this or other standards bodies that have maybe standard this, is we never thought we were trying to create a global standard for financial information in its totality. I think it's a very complicated domain, uh, touches lots of different operational parts of a business and might cover you know, great, you know, a huge number of use cases. So, you know, us breaking it up into this idea of data sources, um, defining a, a ring around a set of use cases, um, and then 
working out how to how to best serve those use cases with that data is is really the way we thought of tackling the problem right the kind of divide and conquer microservices in data standardization oh, that's interesting. Or, um, so are you saying you kind of like took that. a bottoms up approach uh, which, from use case which rather than to trying be, to come up with some super elegant uh, uh, api data approach from the top down Yeah, I think that's that is fair to say. You know, one of the things that maybe when we're we, we're often and we have a we have an internal body uh, that meets as like a center of practice that kind of guides um, that that domain modeling process and and the top line point. And I think this is quite common generally in Kodak. Is like, who is this serving? Like, what's the benefit? What's the use case? Why do they want it? What's the context? Because that's going to lead us to making sure that we we build something that standardizes well across a broad set uh, for the problem that people want to solve. You know, the problem that we're trying to solve is, as I talked about, some of those products. Right? It's like reconciliation, moving data around. It's it's helping people make good risk decisions and things like that. Um, it's the problem we're trying to solve is not a global standard for financial information. Um, which is, you know, a massive problem that uh, that you know supranational organisations have tried to tried to define. Um, and uh, yeah, I think bottom up for us is um, uh, is the, the way that has been my big about. question through this whole. As I've been looking at your product and reading your documentation, and at, finally, I think that's the right answer. That, or that's a very satisfying answer to say that it's domain driven. It's use case driven from the bottom up because I always just get worried when the key to success is everyone agrees on the data standard. Uh. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I don't know whether you're a web comic fan, but there's a, a famous um, uh, three panel from XKCD, which is like, you know, oh, there are 14 global standards. You know, we really need to try and find a way to aggregate these into a, a common shared standard for everyone. And then the final <laughs> panel is like, now there are 15 <laughs> global standards. Yeah, yeah. We used to say uh, um, standards are great yeah. and there's so many to pick from, right? Um, I do really believe in standards, though. I don't want to take anything away from that effort. I do think it's always going to be an 80-20 situation in which standards can cover a lot but they can't really, they'll never cover everything. This is the difference between software and data. Software is beautiful because it can be correct. <laughs> you can get an answer, right? Um, I think data, there's always some part of it that's just sort of a hot mess. Um, some portion, not for you guys, obviously. You've got everything completely figured out. But, <laughs> but, but you know, there's always some portion that like, is harder to nail down than the rest of it. Um, and so, um, I like, I like the approach of that. That makes sense to me anyway, of, you know, showing sort of immediate value use case by use case, rather than trying to have some master plan. Um, that said, uh, you know, let me, let me just make sure I understand it so that, you know, if I'm a, what I can do using your service is just use a console, right. To connect up all, I don't. I never have to. There, you know, as a user, I can use the API or I can just use the console. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so you know, that's another approach I think that Kodak's always taken, which is this this dial between no code and and fully API integrated and API driven. I think that the great thing about that kind of no-code offering, and we use you know custom branding and things like that, and uh, uh, dashboarding and workflows where where needed, is that you know that no-code thing allows you to prove value very quickly, which is very useful in a lot of markets. It also allows you to kind of buy into the API-driven uh, experience at a pace which matches you know your your business's ability to build to that API, which is different for every business, and every business has got a different set of priorities on their roadmap. So you want to be able to prove value as quickly as possible with you know with the products that Kodak are offering, and then for us to be able to um, better evidence you know all of the richness that you're going to get through that API um, uh, API driven approach. You know, and go back to that link product you know we were talking earlier. I think it's a pretty good example in that we've you know we've got a, a totally managed kind of you can send someone an email with a with a link in it that will go through this guided, uh, custom branded 
experience in their browser, which is fully hosted by by Kodat. That's like the the ultimate no code experience. You know, the next level of that is to say, okay, you know, you want to keep this experience somewhat native. You can use um, our our. Uh, embedded connection journey, which is a React component, if you happen to be using React on your front end. Um, and you can embed that flow directly into your, your application. Now, everything that those two, either the, the kind of you know fully hosted out in a web browser versus this kind of React component embedded, all of that is driven directly through our public API. So any aspect of that, uh, those two those systems that are you know ship presenting an end user with a list of um, data sources for them to pick and then sending them off on the integration flow all of that can be fire, powered by by things from our API and we think that that kind of this journey from you know fully managed to API integrated to for you to be able to add richness uh, for the experience um, that you have for for the people that you're trying to engage whether it's your risk analysts who you know, want data fed into a model or to look at a, uh, an analyst's tool in Assess um, uh, delivered by Kodat, um, is this kind of uh, this dial that you can, you can buy into at whatever point that makes sense for you to, to spend the engineering time to, to get that benefit for the richer. So that's great. That, know, yeah, so you've experience. got kind of a, a wide, you've cast a wide net in terms of that end user profile, and it's also componentized so that you can sort of pick and choose the degree to which you're going to, you, <laughs> the degree. Um, that's interesting. So you've got this, and in Assess, you're doing automated insights. And um, some of those may feed into very important risk calculations, right, for the um, downstream organization. I also hear you saying that, um, you know, you're looking at the, the topology of all this integrated data and helping unify it into standard classifications, right? Those take, that takes a lot of intelligence, like machine learning, artificial intelligence. What has been your sort of technical approach? You know, to me, I feel like your whole business is based on one API to rule them all, data aggregation, but this is a step further into, um, into machine learning. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And um, again, I think we've, we've always started from, from the bottom up. Right. Um, what is the use case? What is the biggest pain point? You know, and there, there are two things there in terms of uh, machine learning. Maybe as one, when we're trying to do something predictive, but there's also, you know, the 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 the, the fact that we're a data aggregator allows us to make, you know, really interesting, do really interesting statistical analysis, um, which is the kind of meat and potatoes uh, of data science, right, is when you've got a clean data set and one might look at Kodak specifically, if you wanted to from a different perspective, look at Kodak specifically as like a data cleaning um, organization, right, that we're creating this kind of standardized data on the basis of specific use cases or business behaviors, um, which is a great thing to be feeding into, into a model to learn or to make statistical analysis on course, but also doing something predictive with ML. And I think the benefit of using something like Kodak as well is, you know, a lot of smaller, you know, smaller lenders or lenders that are just starting up, right? A biggest problem with saying, we think we could have a great hybrid model um, for risk analysis is what are you going to train that hybrid model on, right? On day one of your business opening the doors. You know, if you could use a no-code uh, offering to be able to onboard, um, uh, uh, on board businesses, then you're going to be able to have a re avenue to, to getting data in order to be able to train your model. And in the meantime, you know, maybe you'd want to be using some tool like Kodat, which can make predictions on the basis of this kind of aggregated data set that we have. And you get to leverage then the intelligence that we can gain from, from much larger uh, sets of data. Yeah, that's interesting. Clients. That makes sense. And then so in terms of this... Uh you know, data cleaning or making recommendations on how to better, you know, operate. Um, is that something that oh, for the accounting, if you're connected to you, I, I think I read somewhere that if you, if you're account, like connected to uh, QuickBooks or something like that, that over time, this, you guys can recommend better use of the features in your accounting software or your approach to reconciliation. Is, is that right? Or did I misremember that? Um, maybe I'm, I might be misinterpreting the question. So I, in terms of reconciliation, um, I think we, we understand how, how QuickBooks and Xero, um, 
operate, you know, what their operating principles are for doing ERP with those systems. And so where we're fueling, you know, where we're kind of managing that reconciliation, as we talked about expenses or point of sale information, uh, this commerce, I think for commerce product. Um, yeah, we've got good uh, knowledge and good relationships with those, you know, we talked about as well as, as integrations change and as their uh, maybe needs or expectations change in their API, that's something that's going to be frictionless for you using Codant, right? Because we understand both how that software thinks or wants those things to be reconciled and we have a good understanding of a broad okay, set so of Okay, so maybe it gets a little better out of me. gets a little bit better out of my use of my underlying account. You help me use my underlying accounting software a little bit more accurately or more fully. Okay. Yeah, that was my awkward way of asking that question. So thank you. <laughs> I need some help on that. Um, listen, Lynn, I want to shift attention to, you know, I think one of the interesting things is you guys have made some particular technology decisions based on uh, some particular theses. Um, do you, can you share with us some of the big technology decisions since you were employee one, which is a special, special role? <laughs> um, you, you know, what are some of the big tech decisions um, people yeah. you know, probably don't know? Uh, yeah, big tech decisions that people don't know. I think a lot of it was, maybe I've mentioned this a few times, this idea of, of bottom-up, right, I think we, we labeled it as bottom-up, but this, this uh, relentless kind of pursuit of what's the use case, who's the persona, what is the client problem, let's focus ourselves around the, the problem statement and build for that. And I think we've always, um, we've always done that at every level, even where we have technical decisions. Um, and I think this is great practice for any business, right? Is to say, we all have a shared roadmap, um, whether it's technical or product, and it's all based on, on an outcome, uh, desired and expected outcome for a client. And a, a big part of that as well is, is what do they expect from the system? What do they need it to do? And that's what we should be addressing. Um, and part of that is kind of, Building boring, I think, you know, we talk about a lot, I talk a lot about building with boring technology. Um, you know, you get, you get a certain amount of, um, let's say you get a certain amount of creativity to spend in a business. Um, and you want to be spending that on tackling the client's um, problems in the best way that you can, right? And if you're if you're a new business, it's probably somewhere that you're disrupting, or it's a new product category, or something like that 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 needs a lot of innovation, needs a lot of creativity in that kind of problem space in the in the that business domain. And so you don't necessarily want to be spending all your creativity in in some esoteric technology in order to. Uh, to serve that. Um, and so that's, uh, I think that's always been at our core is like in technology, it's kind of proving the operational um, expectation can be met and then looking at the, the roadmap ahead in terms of that expectation, the operational expectation, and then building the way that you change technology around that. Um, and uh, that's meant that we've had to be incredibly evolutionary in the way that we design our architecture. Um, uh, and the way that we we choose technology, we've we've had to allow for innovation where it's been necessary to be flexible, um, and we do a lot of things. We try and favour composition and choreography as those kind of, you know, um, patterns for for achieving that. Um, and the integration space is a good one. You know, a lot of you know, I think on the face of it, you would say here's an OAuth two API, OAuth two kind of authorized API that has a bunch of REST endpoints. Surely that's the same everywhere, and actually the reality is there's you know there's a lot of things that 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 seem the same and want to be the same in their outcome, but actually in their implementation are very different. Uh, and so we've built a technology stack and an SDK for doing those kind of things, which is very composable. You know that allows us to leverage that kind of broad set of knowledge in order to build new integrations quicker because we've seen that problem before, but also to be able to maintain the changing way that we want to operate. Um, in any particular integration that then maybe uh, yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah, you're really amassing know-how like so, in this like yeah. super hard problem of integration uh, because you have seen the problems time and time again and you're building in your team this know-how. I think in a lot of businesses, even when you solve a problem, uh, that no, it kind of goes away, <laughs> right? If, yeah. Um, 
Sure. I mean, it, I, I mentioned before this this uh, this team, this center of practice. We call it the data model committee. Um, we have a lot of committees at Kodat, which is maybe a tongue-in-cheek name for, for something that started early doors. It's maybe part of uh, an idiosyncrasy of Kodat. But the uh, the data model committee, you know, has been around for a long time in terms of guiding this this kind of use case-based approach to, to standardization uh, and thinking about, um, you know, we've seen a lot of APIs um, and, and how, uh, how people present data that, you know, actually the business behavior might be very similar in all of them, but there are many different That's ways intriguing. that, that It's intriguing. Presented. It's really embracing um, a yeah, part of, of, the, of the process, right? You're really embracing and going into the storm. <laughs> Whereas the, you know, typ typically what you do is you'd want to, you know, if you were doing this manually or a one-off, you do it like individually, you probably wouldn't document it. And then you just back out of the room and hope you never have to do it, <laughs> whatever this is again. And of course that, um, that like inevitably leads to problems for the individual business. But I think it's an asset for, for you guys. You've really kind of built up an asset of knowledge around the most painful component. Yeah. And uh, again, uh, talking a bit about company DNA, you know, one of our operating principles is, you know, boring problems are almost always undervalued. Um, and, you know, a lot of those things, I think, might seem on the face of it like boring or laborious. Um, but actually, there's a huge amount of value in building that understanding and, um, and doing it in a way which is, which is useful. And I think that's, that's the core point. It's got to be useful wanna, for solving Yeah, I want to talk more about what makes um, a boring that, technology that or a, a boring problem because I'm very interested in that. Um, but my, the, if you are solving a uh, more humble problem... <laughs> Right. Um, does that affect your recruiting for software developers who want to work on more of these uh, you know, technical delight, esoteric things? Um, yeah, I, I think if somebody is a software engineer that is driven by a bleeding edge sense of, you know, a new paradigm for a way to solve the same class of problem. Yeah, Kodak's probably not going to be a great place for that engineer. Um, potentially, I mean, there's a lot of different jobs that we do, right? Not everybody is, is building integrations. But I think it would also be, uh, it'd be disingenuous to say that actually the job that we have uh, building those integrations is is humble. Maybe I think a, a big part of it is uh, the scope. You know, it's an incredibly interesting area in terms of the scope. You have this um, multi-dimensional complexity in terms of the the number of use cases, the complexity of the data um, that we're trying to standardize, which is a very oh, yeah. interesting. <laughs> I don't want to take away any um, sort of problem. <laughs> it's hard. Uh, don't get me wrong. With... It's hard. Um, <laughs> I, I hope that didn't come out wrong. I think um, I, you know, there's just a whole discussion going on in the developer engineering world that you know people go through these incredibly rigorous uh, interview processes as for software development positions. Um, and then the real job is something very different, right? It's, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's fair enough. I, I, I think we've always hired at Kodat on the basis of um, finding excellent individuals um, who are capable of solving the problems that we need to be solved. Um, and then bringing on a whole bunch of um, uh, of skills and experiences, you know, that we can we can leverage to, uh, to to find global maxima of things we might be doing that we could be doing better, right? That we could be optimizing better, or there might be some systems approach where actually it's not optimization, it's reorganization that's that's gonna um, that's gonna lead us to a better outcome. Um, and so, yeah, our hiring has always uh, has always been done in that way. Uh, uh, you know, you're not gonna sit down and interview a cutout and be asked to solve some you know, obscenely complex kind of graph traversal problem um, in, you know, the least, uh, the smallest O notation you possibly can, because that's not generally the sorts of problems we're solving. And actually, if you've spent a lifetime uh, perfecting that, 
Um, that's great. There's loads of places where that's hugely useful. But actually, while our world is changing uh, and is in flux, you know, I think we need to be finding people who are look have a systems approach. You know, and we talked about that use case. The use case implies some commercial understanding as well. Um, and I think yeah, those are the, the, you know, in terms of the engineers we're hiring. I think those are the ones that, that really fly, that are, that are looking to, to, we you know, often talk about code out heads up engineers, right? So engineers that are um, looking up from the keyboard across the business about things that we could be doing better and, and problems we could, be, we could be solving that we're not solving. I think, you yeah. know, I'm definitely hearing a theme uh, and uh, I'm learning about uh, a little bit more about Kodak's culture and the theme, certainly committees, I get that. That's an important phrase. Um, transparency. This ability to, using your term, like, focus on um, boring problems and <laughs> boring tech, which I want to get back to what you mean by that. And then, um, you know, this idea that it's really very yeah. use case domain driven. I think that's such a, these are sort of, I'm getting a better picture of the culture at Kodat. Um, since you were founding, you know, not one of the first, you were the first employee. Is that right? The first? Okay. And now how many software yeah, developers right. yeah. do you have? Uh, just um, okay. just heading so, up to 150. You know, I'm hearing about this idea of having heads up developers, being very transparent. Um, I'm just curious, uh, how has that journey been building an organization like that from really just you? And now that, that's a pretty big team. Is there any like uh, things you learned or advice you'd pass on to someone building an engineering team? Um, yeah, I think a few of the things that that we've done over time are, you know, we quite like growing into uh, an organizational structure. Um, I don't think that necessarily means us, us you know, creating some, um, some what if, uh, sort of uh, either way of organizing the business or organizing technology or something, but it's, it's about having an understanding of where we're going, being, you know, looking ahead, um, and organizing for the next inflection of scale while you can still uh, experiment. I think it has been very helpful. The other one is, you know, early doors um, and right from the beginning of an individual's you know, tenure, as soon as they start at Kodat, is, is building a sense of ownership. Um, and a sense of autonomy and a sense of systems thinking. You know, you, you, I don't think we had an engineer that's, well, every single engineer that's ever started at Kodak has released code to production by the end of their first week. Um, that's at least, I think, quite often it happens much earlier than that. And that's about kind of reducing the fear and the friction to be able to know that they have agency in both making technical decisions um, and submitting code to production to to solve um, the problems. Um, and also that the process that we use, you know, that growing into and having a sense of experimentation is that every individual is an agent and has agency um, over changing the process. You know, I like to talk about the fact that Kodak is, is very strict on the rule of law. You know, you must follow the process. We ask that everyone uh, follows the process as best they can. They measure what outcomes are necessary uh, in their, their, their business unit and they follow their process in order to achieve those outcomes. If the, pro if the process that they're following doesn't achieve the outcomes they want, change the process, right? And be an agent in doing that and, and have a bit of systems thinking about where risk can be spread. And I think those sorts of things, you know, helps us keep this idea of startups often higher you hire a lot of generalists who are good at kind of adapting to situations. And that's the thing that often gets missed, right, is as a process gets, gets larger, um, it's going to feel much more rigid. But I think if you build flexibility into it, the, the process is there to achieve an outcome. You know, that's, that outcome is the most important thing, right? The client use case, the client experience, those things are the most important thing. If you're not doing that faster or yeah, more accurately, that's interesting. I, I, I was the founder it. of a startup that got up to 80 people. And I do think you can get a little, obs in, in the focus on operational, you know, uh, making operations repeatable, right? Because when you're smaller, <laughs> It's a little bit more of an ad hocracy. You're improving, a little, you know, it's improvisational. But it, you know, you get then you kind of over-index on process and the way it should be. 
Um, and so I think that's right. That mindset that keeps the entrepreneurial mindset of exactly like, what's the end point here that we're solving for as well as like, okay, we need some processes. I think that's a, that's a really cool, uh, that's an interesting observation and quite accurate. Yeah. And I, I think sometimes that means that you have to make some sort of trade on efficiency in order for there to be the capacity there to kind of, to adapt. Um, and actually that, 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 slight marginal uh, efficiency is spent on innovation, you know, and, and knowing that when people are finding a better way, a better global maxima, that you have a way of, of disseminating that. And so going back to that, you know, <laughs> that committees thing, right, we have, we have a lot of working groups and, and committees, which this whole idea of this bottom-up centers of practice uh, that exist in order to be able to share, understand, and, and disseminate, okay, what's your context? What were you trying to solve? What did you measure? And what's the new outcome, right? Uh, should I adopt that or shouldn't I on the basis of those things? Um, and we use things like, in tech, we use things like ADRs and uh, uh, to document decisions. And we have an RFC process um, as well. That means if people have a problem that they, they want, to collaborate on, they can publish that to the right, kind of right. Uh, technical I like that. So you community. keep all the pro you you know add the standard process, the, the rule of law, as you say. But in your opinion, you would, if you had to overbalance towards innovation, you'd probably do that. And yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, I'm scared of hurting somebody's feelings, but <laughs> I want to ask. What do you think about a boring technology? So don't name any names, but uh, <laughs> like one. <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll name some names. I, I think they'd be proud of it. Um, I think they'd be proud of the moniker. So, w w what does boring technology mean? It's like a it's a glib clickbait title, I think, for um, for saying that there is a decent level of operational understanding within the individuals who are going to be operating that thing at scale or at the, the desired scale anyway. Um, and so, you know, we're, uh, we're a .NET shop. Um, there's a lot of engineers writing C-sharp code uh, that's running on .NET. Um, and we're on latest and greatest, .NET 6 every, which is a great runtime. Uh, that's an exciting runtime, but you know, we trust Microsoft. It's not so boring, <laughs> but uh, it's, been, it's been pretty solid. So we're, uh, we're happy with it. But you know, there's, there's a lot of engineers out there who have a really good understanding about how C-sharp and .NET will behave at scale in a production environment, which means that hiring for those individuals, sharing mm -hmm. information, being able to Google a problem. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned uh, that. Is what I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt you for one boring. second, just say like, for investors in particular, you, you might like, I've often gotten the question, well, why do I care what, what is, what's, what it's written in? Or why do I care about these technical decisions? But it has an incredibly powerful punchline in hiring. Yeah, uh, hugely. And, um, uh, and operations, you know, um, because you might find it really easy to hire a whole bunch of people who want to use the latest and greatest. But if they're not core contributors to that, you know, naught point, not one release um, of that particular technology, then getting an operational understanding of what to do next uh, when you come across something that's either a scale inflection or, or some particular operational problem, either what is being seen as a defect, you, know, you need to know where the boundary is when, you've, when you find some defect in your system. And they're always going to happen with software. But you want to know that, you know, is it me or is it them, right? Is it the technology or is it me? Um, and being able to eradicate that kind of, is it the technology question, because that's a much harder one maybe to answer. Like I say, unless you're maybe the key contributor and understand every line of code for something that you're, you're buying into the business, um, then you, you want to be spending again that innovation time, that, that, that knowledge and that creativity and finding a way to tackle um, that defect uh, and, and, and learn from it in your business domain. So yeah, we use C-sharp.net. We like Microsoft SQL Server. Again, you know, there isn't a problem you're not going to be able to Google um, for, for anything that happens at actually quite heavy load. You know, it's a system that's been tried and tested at, at massive scale. Um, 
Uh, and so, you know, you can get a lot of uh, leverage of that. And I think there's, there's, like I say, maybe there's, a, there's some operational inefficiency that you might say maybe for any particular use case or problem, you might be able to find a technology which is more directly suited to it. Um, but then you've got to look at what is the long-term cost of maintenance for that. That's not only the long-term cost of maintenance in terms of your understanding, that's assuming your understanding or the, the global knowledge base doesn't change as well. And, and how many times has an engineer said, you know, they've looked back at code they wrote six months ago and thought, well, I would re-engineer that completely from, from scratch. Now, let's say that that's the first six months you've been using that brand new technology. You've probably, you know, there's, there's an extra dimension to that complexity in terms of maintenance um, and in terms of incurring technical debt. Um, you know, that it doesn't mean to say that there aren't places where that operational efficiency doesn't have a crossover point between what's the complexity involved in us building with this technology that's going to give us this marginal difference. But I think the idea is that, you know, you're starting from a point of making sure you're building to the expectation of the customer in a way that you can, you can iterate your, your software to get there, and then starting to think about what's the operational margin that we want to be contracting in and uh, we found in most places um, actually that crossover point at which there's some marginal gain at re-architecting gets further and further away it's not Moore's law that's driving it further away given right it's the it's not every year the CPU is getting faster but there's a whole bunch of other things going on in the, the world around us right the move from HTTP 1.1 to HTTP 2 everywhere actually suddenly all of the things that are API calls between services which you know even at a data layer quite often I might be using HTTP or something suddenly gets uh, some boon just because of the nature of the the protocol underneath. And I, I think that happens a lot. Um, right, so proudly you know, as, wear as the moniker grow. of boring technology. That's what I've, I've learned. Um, no, that's, that's a really interesting. Well, um, I've really enjoyed talking with you. I um, am just uh, fascinated by your, uh, your product. Seems amazing. Uh, it is offering, like, you know, I'd love to see small and mid-sized businesses get access to all the same um, data and benefits of that data that we see in really large companies. Um, so uh, the only question I would uh, kind of wrap up with, I'm just curious, are you still, are you coding or do you, are you engaging with any other technologies uh, just to stay technical? Yeah, um, I, I, I'm a, I guess I'm a technologist. I think a lot of people who have started building from a young age and have continued to can't help themselves. Um, so, you know, I might, you know, we don't necessarily use it at Kodak, but you know, I tinker with bits and pieces in Rust, and I, I really like Elm. Um, yeah, so not crackers. Yeah, uh, I like the functional approach. You know, I, I think it uh, it lends a lot to a different way of thinking about things. In terms of, you know, and I'm always going to be tinkering in that way and, and building. I think how that informs the way you know I, I think about technology at Kodat, I think they're somewhat related. Do I write code every day? I, sometimes, I think there's, um, there's a good amount of Git blame with my name still on being employee number one. So I think it, would be, uh, it wouldn't be decent of me not to, to lend myself to either correcting wrongs or sharing context or something like that. Um, so yeah, sometimes I can be found, um, yeah. Uh, well, like I said, it's only six months, right, until you think you could have done something in a better way. And we've been at Kodak for five years, so uh, there's plenty of code around. Software engineers, any engineer software engineers and, uh, are often uh, musicians, and that's for a reason, right? They're constantly tweedling and going back. And <laughs> um, that's interesting. Um, yeah, we should do a show on Rust. Actually, a lot, a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, that whole space, I think, um, you know, Go, Rust, Sig, I think a lot of people are trying to solve that, you know, the latest C++ versions aren't going far enough for the sake of, um, uh, of a nice building experience. Um, a lot of it is to do, I think, with package management, dependency management. I mean, you know, that seems to be a default now. You need a tool chain which is um, cohesive. And, uh, you know, I think that's brilliant. It's nice to see innovation in a space that is, you know, I don't know, what, 60 years, 
60 years on or more. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. Like I say, I started my life um, in the embedded world, uh, writing VHDL, C, Objective-C, you know, so, um, uh, so I still have a, I still have a heartstring connected to, um, to see. So, uh, so I agree. Again, well, maybe we'll do another show on that. Um, in the meantime, Brilliant. thank you so much for your, your time and your insights on, on building. I thought it was just, it was just great to catch up with you. And, um, uh, we didn't have a chance to talk. About, oh, I'm sorry. Actually, let me, maybe we'll cut this part out. I'm sorry, Jason. I did have one other question. How is Kodak doing? Uh, I didn't get a chance to talk about the business side. I, I, I understand you just expanded into a big new office. And so it seems like things are going great. Yeah, things are going great. Um, so we have we we spent a long time growing out of the office space that we had through uh, through the pandemic, um, and we've just kind of uh, kind of exploded into a, a great new space. Um, we're still in Farringdon in London, uh, which is where our main office is. We also have just moved our, our New York team into a, a wonderful new office. Oh, I walked um, past your well, office in New York. Growing a lot. I walked you past know, that. Yeah, just recently. Commercial and solutions um, team. And thought of yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, well deserved. I love the uh, boring use case bottoms up approach. I've learned a little something about your culture uh, as well as your technology and just really appreciate your time, Jason. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me on and uh, thanks for your time as well. Yeah, it was a really interesting chat.